If an item is found in a particular area, then in order to determine the status of that item, we can use one of two principles. The first one, and that is the one which is generally used, is roiv, which means that we follow the majority, so whatever status the majority of items in that area have, that's what status we assume this item to have. But there's another principle known as koroiv, and that is that we give this item the status of the nearest other item to it. Now in general, if these two principles go against each other, for example, if the item nearest to this thing has a different status to the majority of things in that area, then we go off to the roiv. So roiv beats koroiv. The principle of using the majority overrides the principle of relying on the nearest item. Now in our Mishnah we're going to see an exception to this rule. Chayri Hanamolim says the Mishnah, ant holes. Ants often dig holes in a field and take pieces of grain and different stalks and store them in this ant hole. So, th so if there's an ant hole and the ant spent the night next to a pile of grain which was obligated in Maestras. So these ants were spotted the night before and the holes are right next to this pile. Now the majority of the field in this case has not yet been piled up. However, this pile of produce, which is next to the ant holes, that has been piled up, and therefore that is considered processed. So now, the majority of the field is not yet obligated in Maestras, because it has not yet reached its Gemara Malacha. But the nearest grain is obligated in Maestras. So the question is, what is the status of the grain which is in the ant holes? Do we assume they came from the rest of the field, the majority of the field, or do we assume they came from the pile, that the ants got them from the nearest pile? And the answer is, in this case, we go after Korov, we follow what is nearest to it, and therefore, the grain which is in the ant holes is obligated in Maestras, just like that pile which is near to it is obligated in Maestras. Now, why exactly in this case are we following Korov and not Rov? Answers the Mishnah, It is known that they were dragging grain the entire night from produce which had been finished, which had reached its Gemara Malacha. Meaning that in this case, it's much more logical to assume that these ants brought the grain from the nearest pile. Especially since the ants were seen there last night. Rav only overrides Korov if there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. But in this case, there is definitely evidence to suggest, and for us to assume that the grain came from the pile, and therefore it is obligated just like the pile of grain is obligated in Maestras. Mishnachetz, the final mission of the Masechta, brings us another list. We've had quite a few lists in this Masechta, and now we're going to have another one. Names of different types of produce which are exempt from Maestras. And the first few which we're going to mention which are exempt, the reason why they are exempt from Maestras is because they most commonly grow in the wild. They aren't planted and looked after by people. Rather, they grow by themselves, and because of that, they are ownerless. They're Hefka. And as we learned in the first Mishnah, produce which is not owned by somebody at the time that it becomes obligated in Maestras is indeed exempt from Maestras. Begins the Mishnah. Shum Balbechi, garlic which comes from a place called Balbechi, or Vatzel Sharachpa, onions which come from a place called Rachpa, Grease Naki Lokin, crushed beans from a place called Kilkia, Lohadoshma Mitzres, and Egyptian lentils, and Rebimeir says about Karkos, even Karkos, which is a vegetable from the family of cabbages. And Rebiyosi says Ava Kotnim, also Kotnim, which are from the family of lentils. All these vegetables, Paterum and Amaisus, are exempt from Maisus. Again, because one can assume that they came from Hefka, since almost always this produce grows in the wild. Now, of course, if you know as a fact that somebody did, did plant it, and it was owned by somebody, then, of course, you would need to separate Maisus. We're talking about a situation where you don't know where they were grown, 
And the Mishnah is telling us that you can assume that they were grown in the wild, and are therefore hefka, and are therefore exempt from Maestras. As well as that, they can also be bought from anybody during Shemitah. In general, it's forbidden to buy produce from somebody during the Shemitah year, if you know that that person does not open up his field for everybody to come and take the produce. And during Shemitah, one has to do that, so if this person did not do that, then one is not allowed to buy produce from him. However, in our case, you are allowed to buy this from anybody, because you can assume that it didn't even grow in his field. Because these things almost always grow in the wild, which means that Schmitter wouldn't really apply to them even, since they are not grown in people's fields. So no one would even need to open up their fields for these plants, since they are never really planted in people's fields. Okay, now we come on to the second part of the Mishnah, the second part of this list of species which are exempt from Mycerus. And this time, the reason why they are exempt is because they are not edible. And again, as we learned in the first Mishnah, one of the conditions for Mycerus to apply is that the food has to be edible, and therefore, Zerlofor Elyain, the seed of a wild onion, Zer Kreishim, leek seeds, Zer Betzolim, onion seeds, Zer Lefes Otsnoinois, turnip seeds and radish seeds, and all other seeds which are planted in a garden, and are not edible, Peturman Amaisiris, are exempt from tithes, and once again, they can be bought from anybody during Shemitah, because Shemitah as well does not apply to inedible produce. And the Mishnah adds, and really this has the same meaning as and even if Shavia and Truma, their father seed was Truma, and this is referring to a separate law with regards to Trumus, and that is that if somebody plants Truma, the Rabbanon, that which grows from the seeds, are also considered Truma. However, the Rabbanon only decreed this if the seeds were edible. And since the list we just gave, the seeds are not edible, Har'eliyo the produce which grows from the seeds, may be eaten, because we treat that as Chulin, and the Rabbanon's decree does not apply to inedible seeds. Solom HaSerches Maestros, Mazel Tov. Mesech Smaishashini discusses one of these specific tithes which is separated from one's produce. It literally means the second tithe, because it is separated after Maiserishan, which goes to the Levi. And really the order of the tithes is first one separates Truma, which is on average one fiftieth of his produce. Then he separates one tenth of the remaining produce as Maiserishan for the Levi. And after that, from the remaining produce, ten percent of the remaining produce is Maiserishani. Now the truth is, Maiserishani is not separated every year, only in the first, second, fourth, and fifth year of the Shemitah cycle is Maiserishani separated, and during the other two years of the Shemitah cycle, the third and sixth year, Maiserishani is separated instead. Maiserishani would go to the poor people, but Maiserishani, which is the focus of our Masechta, is not actually given to somebody else. Maiserishani is a tenth of one's produce which he eats himself, but he has to eat under certain conditions. For example, he has to eat it in Yerushalayim, he has to eat it in a state of purity, he cannot allow it to become Tomei, and we'll discuss further laws in the Maserta. Now the Torah calls Maiseshani Kodesh LaHashem, holy for Hashem, and because of the holiness and sanctity of Maiseshani produce, there are certain things you cannot do with that produce, and the Mishnah says, Maiseshani Emerichinosei, one is not allowed to sell Maiseshani produce. A sale of Maiseshani is totally invalid, because at least according to our Mishnah, Maiseshani is not considered owned by the person who technically owns it. Rather, it's called Momin Govoya, money of the high one, money of Hashem in a way, and because of that, one has no right to sell the Maiseshani. Others argue and hold that you are considered the owner, and therefore you would be able to sell it. Be it as it may, continues the mission of Imamashkin Osei, one cannot use it as a deposit, as a guarantee to give it to somebody for a few days, that is not considered a respectful enough use of the Maiseshani. 
And as well as that, since it's not considered yours according to our Mishnah, it's Momen Govoya, it's not even considered to be a deposit, because it's not really worth anything because you don't have any rights over it in terms of its ownership. As well as that, so one is not allowed to exchange the Maishashaini, and this means similar to selling it, but instead of selling it for money, you would sell it for other produce. That is also forbidden, just like selling it. One cannot weigh something opposite it. For example, to put Maishashaini produce on scales, on one side of the scales, if you know how much the Maishashaini weighs, in order to test the weight of something else. That is certainly considered a disrespectful use of Maishashaini produce. Now, if somebody is not able to bring up all his fruit or produce to Yerushalayim, that can be very impractical, he is able to redeem the holiness of the Maishashaini onto money, and then bring out the money to Yerushalayim and spend the money on food in Yerushalayim. And all of these restrictions apply to money of Maishashaini as well. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to use a Maishashaini coin to test the weight of something else. Alright, continues the mission of Yerushalayim. One may not say to his friend in Yerushalayim, Heloch Yayin, Here's my sashani wine, recently shemen, and give me oil. Whether the oil is my sashani or not, it is still forbidden, and although we saw this already before in the Mishnah, this part of the Mishnah is adding that even in Yerushalayim, you're not allowed to exchange my sashani. Now, why would I have thought that Yerushalayim would be different? Well, since once you're in Yerushalayim, you can spend money of my sashani to buy food if you redeemed the my sashani onto money. So I might think that my sashani produce itself can also be exchanged for my sashani food other Maishashaini food. And therefore the Mishnah has to tell us that that is not the case since Maishashaini produce is considered the original Maishashaini and there is no need to exchange it for other food, so it is therefore forbidden to ever exchange Maishashaini produce even for other Maishashaini produce. Furthermore, the same applies to all other produce, meaning even produce which is only Maishashaini Midriabonon, for example there are certain types of produce which are only obligated Midriabonon, or certain parts of Eretz Yisrael, which uh, would only be obligated in Midrabanon. Nevertheless, since it is Maishashaini, the same restrictions apply, and now the mission tells us a leniency, and that is, One is allowed to give to somebody else a free gift of Maishashaini. Although you're not allowed to sell Maishashaini, a gift would be permitted, because that's not considered disrespectful. And the truth is, there is a general machlikas as to whether a gift has the same halachic status as a sale. So some explain the Mishnah as going according to only one opinion, that it's not considered like a sale. However, others explain the Mishnah that even according to the opinion that a gift is usually considered a sale, what the Mishnah means is that you're allowed to invite somebody else to take part in your meal of Maishashaini. You can't outright give it to him as a gift, but if you're anyway eating the Maishashaini, then you'd be allowed to invite others to join you, and that certainly would not be considered disrespectful or a misuse of the holy Maishashaini. Mishnah Base, we're now going to go slightly sidetracked to discuss a couple of other things which have similar halachas to Maishashaini. And the first of those which we're going to discuss is Maishabahimah, which is the tithe of animals. The Torah says that one needs to separate one-tenth of all animals born every year, and he separates at random 10% of all the animals which were born that year. Now, of the animals which are separated, the ones which have no wounds or blemishes at all must be offered up as a korban in the Besamekdash, whereas the animals which do have some sort of wound, they do have a mum, they can be eaten pretty much anywhere in the regular way that you would eat any other animal. So the mission tells us that in Moichrin Eisoi Tomim Chai, one may not sell my Sebehema, which does not have a mum, 
while it is alive, one needs to offer it up as a korban in the Beis HaMikdash, but even uval mum, a maise behemoth animal which has a mum, and therefore, as we said, can be eaten as a regular animal, you also cannot sell that whether chai v'shochut, whether alive or slaughtered, even though it's not treated with the same sanctity as a regular mice behemoth animal. Nevertheless, in this regard, it is the same in that it cannot be sold. And this is learned from a gzeir shava. Gzeir shava is when the same word, or a very similar word, appears in two different psukim entirely. And because of that, laws are applied from one to the other. So, for example, in our case, the Torah, when talking about mice behemoth, says the words lo yigoel. It cannot be redeemed. And elsewhere in the Torah, when talking about a different subject, the Torah says, Lo yimochev lo yigoel. That thing cannot be sold or redeemed. Now, because the word lo yigoel appear over there as well, we can apply the law that that can't be sold to Maisebehema as well, and because of that, a Maisebehema animal, even if it has a wound, cannot be sold, rather the owner needs to eat it himself. Now, because one cannot sell Maisebehema, that means that one cannot use it to do Kiddushin on a woman. When one marries a woman, he needs to do two things. The first one is Kiddushin, which is when she becomes betrothed to him, and she becomes forbidden to marry anybody else, unless she receives a get. And the second stage is known as Nisuin, which is the actual marriage which allows them to live together as husband and wife. Now the way Kiddushin works is that one acquires the woman, and one of the ways to do so is to give her something, and by doing that you acquire her. Which means that Kiddushin is really a form of a sale. You are acquiring her, and therefore, the so-called payment for her cannot be Maisa Behema, because Maisa Behema cannot be used in a sale. Now the Mishnah goes on to discuss a Bechur, which in this context means a firstborn animal, and it's a mitzvah in the Torah that all one's firstborn kosher animals, at least, must be given to a Kohen, and if the Bechur does not have a mum, if it's not wounded, then the Kohen must bring it up as a Korban in the Beis HaMikdosh, and then the Kohen can eat the meat, as he would eat the meat of other Korbanas. However, if the Bechur did have a mum, and therefore it cannot be bought as a Korban, then the Kohen is allowed to eat it himself. And not only that, the Kohen is also allowed to sell it, the only reason why by Maisa Behema one cannot sell it is because of the Gzeir Shava, where we compare the Psukim. However, there's no Gzeir Shava with regards to a Bechur, and therefore you are allowed to sell it if it has a Mum. Now, during the times of the Bishamikdosh, if it did not have a Mum, then whatever happens, it has to be bought as a carbon. However, our Mishnah is talking about after the Bishamikdosh was destroyed, and so at that time, one is allowed to sell it even if it is not wounded, while it is alive, and this is referring to the Kohen who receives the Bukhar, he is allowed to sell it on, however it can never be eaten even by the buyer until it does develop a wound. Even without a Bishamikdosh, a Bukhar only becomes permitted to be eaten if it has a wound, so you would wait for the animal to graze in the fields and get a wound, and then you would be able to eat it, and as we said before, Val Mum an animal which does have a wound can be sold both when it's alive or slaughtered, and that would apply even during the times of the Beis HaMikdosh. Now because you're allowed to sell a Bechur, Mekajim Beis Isha, that means that you are also allowed to use it for the sake of Kedushin with a woman, which as we explained is considered a form of a sale. Alright, the Mishnah now returns to the subject of Maishashini, and specifically the subject of redeeming Maishashini onto money. There are a number of limitations for how this can be done, and the first one is One cannot redeem Maishashini onto a coin which has no image on it. If it's a plain coin, it cannot be used for Maishashini, and this is learnt from a Pasuk, which says You should tie up the money in your hand, but the word is also related to the word which means a form or an image. 
So we learn from there that the money used to redeem my Sashini needs to have some sort of image on that coin. As well as that, it cannot be redeemed onto a coin which doesn't function as a form of money. For example, if that money is a different currency, or it's outdated money, the point of redeeming my Sashini onto money is in order that you can spend that money on more food in Yerushalayim. So if that money's not going to be accepted as money, then it can't be used as the redemption money. And finally, while can also not use money which is not in his possession, or if they're not readily available for him, this also can't be used to redeem my Sashini, and this is learnt from the word Vyodecha. The Torah says that you should tie up the money in your hand, which implies that it is easily accessible and available to you.